It is great to have you with us, and thanks for those of you who volunteered and showed up for our three parties last night. We had comedy, we had music, three sittings. I got to do magic for your kids and grandkids. It was awesome. So thanks for being here. And that last song we sang is just a reminder of how we're going to end this book of Song of Solomon. It is all about the resurrection power of Jesus. I remember a buddy of mine been attending our church about seven or eight years ago. He came up to me after a service. He said, Chad, I'm really in trouble. I'm feeling depression. Our marriage is at an all-time low. We're just not only disagreeing with each other, but the in-laws tried to help, and now they're getting kind of one person on one side. You ever know this kind of division between you and your friends? In this case, it was in his marriage. He said, we have so bruised and hurt each other. He said, I just don't think there's any way back. Then he said to me these words. He said, Chad, my marriage needs a resurrection. And that stuck with me. And both of them were Christians and both of them were hurt and both of them were just really have been bruised by each other in the circumstances and they committed together. No, they committed individually to move closer to God with hopes that if they move closer to God, it might move them closer to each other. And every week they came to church, still mad at each other, still resentful of each other, but every week they kept coming to get close to God. Every week they had two couples in the church who they had lay hands on their backs and pray for them every week. God, we're praying for a resurrection. And I caught up with him six months later. Hey, man, I've seen you in a while. What's going on? He's like, Chad, you are not going to believe it. God has brought healing to my heart and forgiveness. I've been open to some boneheaded things I did and, and things I didn't see before. My wife did the same thing. She's found some forgiveness. And we have found new life and new beginning. Our marriage has a resurrection. Not because of some counseling book. Not because of some marriage book. Because we got closer to God. In every relationship you have broken. Between you and a friend. You and a parent. You and a child. You and your spouse. We all need resurrection power. And if you were to pick up the scroll of the Song of Solomon, and, and if you were to say, hey, I found this in a cave, does this belong in the Bible? You'd be like, why in the world would a steamy Jewish love poem belong in the Holy Scriptures? But I said, no, this book points to God. Right. In fact, this, this book, this steamy Jewish poem, it's all about Jesus. That's blasphemy. But you're going to see today how this Last chapter in particular makes it all clear that the whole thing's been about Jesus. Here's where we've been in the series. We've learned over the last six weeks that the whole thing is set up in a Jewish poem that rhymes different chapters with different chapters. My view is it's set up as a seven-day Jewish wedding feast. Day one rhymes with day eight, and that's what's strange. There's eight days in this Jewish feast. Day two rhymes with day seven. Day three, a dream sequence with day five. And the whole thing points to the icing in the middle. Or that one time God speaks that we need to invite God into the center of our relationships. As we cover the last three days together today, we're going to look at affirming your spouse with your words, renewing love in the garden of marriage, and then this idea that resurrection love is a secret to make it all work. And again, if you're not married today, this applies to any relationship. This book is primarily about marriage, but the principles apply everywhere, at least most of them. So we'll see it together. Now we've also learned in this series that God is a, a three-in-one being and he's created human beings as three-in-one. 
So part of relationships is God designed us to connect at all three levels. Our spiritual level, our soulish level, our soul includes what we think, what we want, and what we feel, and our bodily level. That these three aspects are God's plan to put together in marriage with a certain priority and a certain order of that in the context of marriage. But today, whatever area of life you're at, we're going to find that the ability to restore and revitalize and refresh and resurrect your relationships, the secret to all those things is found on the eighth day. So do you need some refreshment in your life? You need some revitalization in your life? You need some restoration in your life? The secret is found on the eighth day. Let's look at these three days together. Day number six. Day number six is all about the power of affirming words. And we need words. We need words from coaches. We need words from friends. We need the power of words. As I say to people getting married, no matter how good your love life is, no matter how much time you have in the bedroom, I promise you, you will spend more time not in the bedroom. So you better learn how to enjoy each other. You better learn how to talk to each other. You better learn how to enjoy each other's company. And if you remember from last week, our couples had a gigantic fight. They've been angry and mad and didn't understand each other. But they brought patience and forgiveness and adapting to each other. How's their relationship going to foster after that conflict? That's where we pick up here in day six. The Shulamite, that means Mrs. Solomon speaking. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley. To see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Now remember, the vineyard is often a metaphor of their relationship. So he's saying, after all that conflict, after all that disagreement, I went down to see if there's any new buds and any new blooms. Did we grow through this conflict? Did we learn anything through the conflict? Did did God teach me anything that can grow out of what we learned in the last chapter? And as I realized he did, he taught me some things. He taught my spouse some things. Oh, my goodness. As I thought, thinking about that, I became aware my soul was, it made me like, like rushing on a chariot. It would be like the equivalent today of saying, man, I was in a convertible, put the top down on the ocean. It was like, wow, this is awesome, riding in a chariot. I began to realize that God works even through conflict. He's growing me. He's growing him. So the beloved, that's her husband, Solomon, and his friends say, she, she's apparently on this chariot in this, in this poem. She's got in the chariot. Man, I love this. I love what God's doing. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, come back that we may look upon you. Tell us more what God is doing. Now here's what's interesting. Gottman, who's a, a researcher on marriage, he said the absolute secret, the most critical habit for any relationship, friends, marriages, you name it, is the ability to give and receive repair attempts. You can be a horrible communicator. You can be, like, always give each other the silent treatment, horrible communicator. You can, like, fight like cats and dogs, kind of bad communication. But if you're able to, when you're mad at each other, do something to repair the relationship. It could be as simple as, hey, I know we're ticked off. Here's your favorite coffee, And that repair attempt is received by the other person. I know they still care about me. Instead of letting anger and resentment and unforgiveness foster, what makes friendships work, what makes marriages work, is the ability to give and to receive repair attempts. You say, well, they don't deserve it. That's why Jesus is the secret to it all. You and I didn't deserve forgiveness. 
And because Jesus went first to make a repair attempt with us, when we receive his repair attempt, we go and extend that to others. And when that happens, as this couple has found, you suddenly begin to see new buds, new blooms, new beginnings. Repair attempts. So now he begins to speak to her in words. And, and what's interesting here is he's going to say almost the exact same thing he said two weeks ago. But last time he mentioned seven things about her. Having gone through conflict, this time he mentions ten things about her. Conflict can help us love and grow and appreciate each other more. We don't have to like the conflict, but we can see God growing us. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. Now, women, have you ever won a Bible verse to support your love of shoes? This is it. This is it. Look, he mentions the sandals. Sandals are important. Let's put that in the budget, honey. Oh, prince's daughter. Now, he's definitely affirming her, but he's also, surely, also describing her body. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands, of your hands, are like a skillful workman. Man, you are gorgeous. You are beautiful. Your navel's like a rounded goblet, and it lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat. What? My waist is a heap of wheat. So if you think, if you've ever seen a harvest going on, if you're in an agricultural community, there's nothing more beautiful than just having all the wheats brought together. It's bundled up. It's perfect. It's ready to go. It's a sign of everything that's been, been kind of uh, tilted into and grown into the whole season. He's like, you are just a manifestation of everything. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower, which is a sign of dignity in that culture. It's just something beautiful and, and majestic. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Now, Heshbon was a little bit to the west, if I remember, of Jerusalem. And, and the ruins we've dug down, and the reservoir is long gone. But there are other reservoirs we found in Jerusalem that look like it. But this was basically this gigantic watery source in Heshbon, where there would be fish and beauty. And what he's saying is, honey, when I look in your eyes... I see who you are, and I see the reflection of who I'm becoming in you. I see what God's doing in you. It's this beautiful picture of a reflection pool. And I'll show you a picture in a second, by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Say what? Again, sign, your, your nose isn't, isn't up high like you're looking down on other people. It's also not dejected. You just hold yourself in confidence, which looks toward Damascus. So this is actually a location that Jesus visited. This is Caesarea Philippi. And it's not quite the same, but it kind of gets the idea of beauty and pools and fish. He's saying, when I look in your eyes, I just see beauty. We're doing a series coming up in January at our exploring service called Social Light, The Lost Art of Friendship. And the research is crystal clear. Social media is like junk food to your, to your biological system and your emotional system because it lacks eye contact. Your body, your soul, your spirit thrives on eye contact, which is why all of our screens are robbing us of connection. He's saying, I like to look into your eyes and see you. And when I see you seeing me, I see a reflection of myself. There is something nourishing God put in us with eye contact. And he continues. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. The hair of your head is like purple. That was a sign of royalty. A king is held captive by your, by your, your, tress, your, your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, my love. Oh, your delights. Verse 7. 
this statue of yours, oh my gosh, you're like a palm tree, and your breasts are its clusters. And I said to myself, I will go up that palm tree and take hold of its branches. <laughs> get a room, people, get a room. Oh, this is a room. This is like, this is like the Bible verse you don't see on Christmas cards. You know, or like an encouragement. Hey, uh, hey, Brother Bob, you are sharing about small group last week. Things are going through a tough time. Hey, just know I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Was thinking of you, uh, Song of Solomon 7, 7 to 8. I was like, oh, my God, what's that all about? So it's just one of those verses you don't hear preached on very often. So he goes on. Let your breasts be like clusters of the vine and fragrances of your breath like apples. And again, just see how the Bible simultaneously affirms virginity till marriage. But within marriage, it celebrates it. It's just bold and direct. He goes on to say, and the roof of your mouth is like the best wine. You know what that means? The French did not invent kissing. That's what it means. <laughs> the Israelites had it a long time ago. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's and his desires toward me. And that's day six. Just a beautiful picture of words and how words can be a source of life. We notice and we see people around us. Are you seeing the people around you? Letting them know they're seen and they value and they matter? It might be hard to hear. Like when you get encouraged sometimes, they go, no, no, I know all my flaws. I know all my insecurities. I know I'm wrong. This is why Jesus is a beautiful picture of this. Because Jesus sees all of our insecurities and everything we've done wrong and all of our sins. And he says, but I see who you are in me. Trust what I say about you more than what you say about you. You're beautiful and you're forgiven in Christ. Day seven. Day seven, things kind of heat up a little bit more. Kind of headed that way. It kind of ends that way here in day seven. This is the need to refresh and revitalize your marriage. So apparently, day seven of the wedding, she wakes him up early. Here we are in verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the valleys. They're going to go on a little trip. They're going to go away for the weekend. They're going to go hang out. He owned massive amounts of fields and vineyards. Let us get up early. We're going to put some variety back in our love life. And some commentators think they're kind of picturing in this section like they've been married for a while. You know what's happening in this day? It's like, it's like later in life we've got to kind of revitalize and refresh and bring some variety back to romancing each other and connecting with each other. So she's like, you know, we typically kind of wait till the kids go to bed. We kind of get the same routine before we kind of become intimate. You know, let's get up early. Let's try a new rhythm, a new time, a new location. Let's go to the vineyards. They're going on a little hike. They get to the vineyards and let's see if the, the, the vine is budded. Back to the idea. Let, let's see what's been growing in our relationship. And whether the, the grape blossoms are open. And they get there and they see these pomegranates. And they're in bloom. And right under this pomegranate tree, in the vineyard, she says, right there, I'm going to give you my love. He's like, sounds good. <laughs> now keep in mind, he owned the vineyard, right? They're not going to somebody else's vineyard. So don't go out and say, Pastor Chad said we should go into somebody else's backyard. I don't want to hear the Horizon Ecology Project talk about people out on our beautiful property experiencing the birds and the bees and scaring off the butterflies and the birds. So that's what I want to hear about that. But here's this idea of we are going to create variety of location and time. Then, right there, she also adds variety of touch and environment. The mandrakes, which were often considered an ancient aphrodisiac, gave off a fragrance. They think, let's think about smells. Let's think about environments. Let's think about newness and freshness. The gates are pleasant fruits. And then she says, all manners I have in store for you, big boy. New ways of touching you, 
old ways of touching you. These are the things I've laid up for you, my beloved. Then she says something bizarre. Oh, that you are like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. Is this like the Alabama translation? It's like the hillbilly version of the Bible? No, so what she's saying is in the Jewish culture, it wasn't appropriate to have PDA, public displays of affection. However, if you were family members, you would kiss your brother, you'd kiss your mom or dad. You just didn't kiss people, strangely, that you were in intimate relationships with. So she's saying, what we have privately, I wish you were like my brother so I could kiss you publicly. That's all she's saying here. All right, if I would find you on the outside... I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. You know what? This is so pure. This is so real. This is so God's plan. We can make love at my parents' house. Uh, It's just everyone knows this is God's kind of gift to married couples. Then she says, I will cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. And often pomegranates were used as kind of a sensual symbol of a woman's body. She's kind of saying, come and enjoy my body. And then she turns back to the chorus. Remember I told you the whole thing's a little bit like a Broadway play. There's kind of the voice of the daughters that are out there. She kind of calls out to the virgins, calls out to those who are yet to be married. And he says, listen, his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. And I talked about this first week. It kind of means caresses. Then she says, I charge you, the daughters of Jerusalem. I charge you, those who are still not yet married or single again. I charge you. This love is such a gift. This love is so powerful. Do not awaken it or stir it up until it's time. God designed this to just really fully be manifest in the context of marriage. So it's going to be tempting to let the fire go, but just, just it's worth the wait. The other commentators say, when she goes on to say, do not awaken love until it pleases, she's always saying to her husband, hey, let's not get something started here if we don't have time for us both to reach satisfaction. It's kind of both are implied here in the text. So day six, affirming each other through words. Day six, Variety prioritizing. We had a, a couple that we've known for many, many years, some of our best friends. And I was talking to him one day, and he said, yeah, our, our marriage is, is great. We've been going into midlife now, and our, I think we've become better friends than we've ever been. I said, well, that's awesome. He said, I'm not sure we're doing real well as lovers. I said, well, maybe you guys should just talk about that. It's kind of an awkward conversation, but if it's important to you, and He's like, I don't know, and and my wife was talking to his wife, and she was kind of like, you know, I'm going through menopause, it's been five years, I get crabby, I love him, but I'm not sure I always like him. (laughs) And Beth was saying she'd been through menopause for 10 years. By the way, it doesn't just women who go menopause, we all go through menopause. And, and, And Beth was just sharing kind of in our journey how it'd been helpful for her and some things she'd tried. And that's, again, why the Bible's so unique in having a triune view of you. There might be spiritual reasons that can help you with depression, or something you're struggling with. There might be emotional reasons, taking thoughts captive, renewing your mind, and there might be biological reasons, like my chemistry's out of whack, so I need to get some medicine for for my depression. We can take a holistic view on stuff as Christians. So Beth shared that, you know, she and I had kind of looked into hormone replacement theory several years ago and how helpful that had been for her, and she's like, I don't know if I want to try that out, and so about six or seven months later, they tried it out and said, man, this was so helpful for us. Thanks for sharing. And I shared, I'd gone through some hormone replacement therapy too because it was helpful for me losing some weight, some health reasons. And, and just how we're trying to sync ourselves up, both uh, bodily, emotionally, and spiritually, and just how helpful it was for us. And, and just having an honest conversation about ways in which you adapt to each other was just a beautiful thing. A chance for us to be vulnerable in our marriage, a chance for them to kind of go, man, I, I'm just looking for new tools. That's day seven. Now, day eight is what I'm so excited about. This whole series I worked on a year ago just to share this with you. 
day eight. It is so crazy that Jewish wedding feasts don't have eight days. They have seven days. Why would there be eight days in this wedding feast? And I'm saying that this eighth day points to Jesus and the need to resurrect any area of your life and to restore your marriage. Everything you need in life comes from day eight. I mention this because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. Now, if you were a Jew, you considered the seventh day of the week Saturday. So since Moses till now, till now, from Moses to Jesus, people celebrate a day of worship on Saturday, the seventh day, the day of rest. Something changes. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish followers of Jesus start worshiping Jesus not on Saturday, the seventh day, but on Sunday. So we have letters, and these letters come from the church fathers. That's a name for the disciples of the disciples. Here's just two. There's dozens of these. 100 AD, Epistle of Barnabas. Wherefore we Christians keep the eighth day for joy, on which Jesus arose from the dead when he appeared ascended into heaven. 150 AD, the Epistle of the Apostles, on the eighth day, which is the day of the Lord, the day he rose himself from the grave. So when we look at this Jewish feast, it points to all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, on day eight, it starts talking about grave and resurrection and beating death. Like, why is this even in here? <laughs> Except Jesus tells us on the road to Emmaus, remember he says, the whole Bible is about him after he was raised. That's what he told his disciples. So let's jump in. Number one, all of a sudden, she, remember she's on this chariot racing around, right? And they went to the garden. So now there's this voice that speaks about the two of them coming back from the vineyards. And this might also be the voice of God because it's not the bride speaking, it's not the groom speaking, it's not the, the, the friends or daughter speaking. This voice says, who is this coming from the wilderness? Leaning upon her, includes her, and her beloved. So somebody objective is talking about the couple. And then this voice says, I awakened you. This relationship you have, this go-through conflict, you're back together again, this, this kind of dead relationship, you're mad at each other, got reawakened. You don't awaken yourself. Somebody awakens you. I, an outside source, awakens you. There your mother brought you forth under that apple tree. I awakened you. I saw you. I knew you. I awakened you. She who bore you brought you fruit, forth. And this idea here is that the love you have, the new beginning you have, it's a gift from me. The love you have, you don't earn it. You've been gifted it from somewhere else, an objective source. And then it says, you need a love that's gifted, but you also need a love that's more powerful than death. The Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon, says to her beloved, set me as a seal on your heart and a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. The love that's making this possible, we need a love that can beat death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. And in marriage, there's a bad jealousy, kind of an insecure jealousy. But then there's a, a good jealousy, which is we belong to each other. And we, can't, we shouldn't be sharing our affections with other people when we've covenanted together. We need a passionate love that's greater than death. It's greater than the grave. Why is he talking about grave and death here on the day eight of the wedding ceremony? 
Why is he saying what we really need is a love that conquers death and conquers the grave. Its flames are like the flames of fire, a most vehement flame. This is powerful stuff here. And when he says here, you know, set me as a seal upon your heart, like what does it mean by seal? He doesn't mean like, you know, barking seal. That's a terrible seal right there. But, you know, you might say, oh, we got a marriage like that. We got, we got a, a, a seal marriage and we bark at each other. Well, that's not what he's talking about. A seal would be like a sealing an envelope or sealing a scroll. And you're saying, man, your name is on my heart. Your name is on my arm so everybody can see it. I brag about you. We are together. And what makes this love possible is it's an other source of gifted love that defeats the grave kind of love. And here again is where you just see why the eighth day, why talk of death and resurrection, something can defeat death, a love that defeats death, because it's pointing to the source of all of our needs for restoration. And then the brothers kick in. We haven't heard from the brothers in a couple chapters. And they say this love is also a love worth waiting for. We need a love, a faithful love that's worth waiting for. The reason Christians think that intimacy is something you wait for from marriage is because you want to be faithful to your future spouse. And the reason you want to be faithful to your future spouse is because God is faithful to you. And you want to live out his faithfulness. That kind of comes up here. So the Shulamite, the, the, the wife's brothers say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. Who writes this stuff? No. So what they're saying is, is that we're remembering our sister back before she reached puberty. And we remember that we wanted to help protect her so that she could experience what she's experiencing now and kind of the, the flourishing of her relationship. What shall we do for our sister in the day which she's spoken for? If she is a wall, if she'd protect herself, yeah, I'm, I don't want to give myself bodily to somebody who doesn't commit to me, uh, both spiritually and emotionally and contractually. If she is a wall, we're going to build on her armament of silver. Yeah, let's, let's wait for God's best. If she's a door, kind of letting anybody into a relationship, we're going to enclose that door and say, hey, honey, you might want to do that. Come on, sister. Come on. The board's a cedar up there. Let's wait. Let's, let's trust God. And she says, hey, you're right. I'm a wall. My breasts are like towers. You can't reach them. I was waiting for the best. I wasn't going to settle. Then I became in his eyes, the one who committed to me, the one who wanted me, the one who devoted himself and coveted with me. That's how I found real peace, real shalom, real favor. So again, we live in a culture that kind of mocks virginity. And again, keep in mind, the guy who wrote this book, he was faithful to the wife he's talking about for about 13 years. And then he totally blew it. What do you mean? Like by the time Solomon's life is over, he has 1,000 wives and concubines. So you talk about a guy who didn't live out what he says. But for 13 years, he said, this is God's plan. This is God's ideal. You read the book of Proverbs. It's genius wisdom. And then you find out the same guy who wrote this, wrote that, and he violated all the principles. So the Bible is also a reminder that God's ideal is here, but we rarely live up to ideal. And God allows for grace and second chances. And let's get back on track. How do I get restored by tapping into the resurrecting, restoring love of Jesus, who not only restored his body, but can restore you and me. I saw an interview with Terry Crews. He's the host of AGT. He's a, a director and an and a actor. 
You know, he talked about that his wife used to call him Mr. Image because he'd be in front of the cameras at the big uh, movie sets and he would treat her nice and dote on her and the minute they got in the car, he'd bark at her and yell at her and be impatient with her. She's like, you're just Mr. Image. Well, they began to grow apart after 15 plus years of marriage, maybe longer. And she called him up one day and said, what is going on with you, Terry? What is it that's going on with you that I don't know? And he was a Christian, still is, being a Christian when he was 12. He said, God was saying, it's time to come clean for something you've been struggling with for 30 years. See, he had been introduced to pornography when he was nine. Nine. And it began to overtake his life. And he said he began to just objectify not just women, just people or just objects for his life and his career and his motivation. And it just began to destroy everything. And he just blurted out, I've got this addiction. And she was shocked. She had no idea. And then he went on to talk about the fact that it led to an affair. And she's like, we're done. It was his worst fear, his worst shame, everything just out in front of him. He called up his pastor. His pastor said, Terry, let's meet. He said, Terry, I can't promise you you're going to get your marriage back. But I can promise you this. God wants you to be free. And you should do this, go on this journey for at least yourself and pray for God's resurrection in you and in your relationship. So he did. And in that process, he went to a, a counselor who said, if you really are serious about this, some of the brain chemistry that happens from age nine to now, you got to take this really serious. I need you to go into like a, 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 a rehab kind of program for a couple weeks. So he called up his wife. She's so mad and ticked off for all good reason, right? She's got justification biblically to be divorced. She's mad. She's meeting with the, the pastor's wife. She's trying to kind of help, you know, walk her through this. And he's like, I'm going to go into rehab. And that grabbed her attention. Mr. Image is going into rehab. This is going to destroy his reputation. He said, no, I'm taking this seriously. And he went into rehab. Meanwhile, she began to meet with the pastor's wife. We began to talk about forgiveness. And God may be having some grace for her to maybe give him a chance. And she really saw this was really different. This was really a change. This was really a move forward. And, and both of them began to grow closer to God. And in part of his program, his, uh, his counselor said, now, with the kind of brain chemistry that happens with that long of an addiction, I want you to go 90 days with no intimate contact with your wife. So she was open to retrying things, and so they kind of made this agreement. And you can Google all this or watch him on videos talking about it. It's just amazing. He said those 90 days changed his life and changed his marriage. He said, I felt like I was 12 years old again, and I began to date my wife, buy my wife flowers, go on dinner. There was no physical intimacy clouding it all up. We fell back in love with each other. And he said, by growing closer to God, we grew closer to each other. It's a love worth waiting for, but it's also love no matter how you've got off the track, no matter what kind of pit you've fallen into, God can resurrect, God can restore, God can revitalize, God can refresh. Whatever addiction you have, whatever pain you have, whatever hidden sorrows you have, God can do a mighty work. And that's why the love we're looking for is the type of love that can restore the garden. We were, the Bible begins with marriage in a garden. It ends with a wedding ceremony in a garden. We need access to death-defeating, garden-restoring love. And that's where this last section ends. Solomon had a vineyard in Baalhaman. He leased the vineyard to his keepers. And she's going to talk about how the economics of vineyards work. Everyone was to bring its fruit. So if you had a vineyard, you need to bring a 1,000 silver coins. That's kind of industry standard, she's saying. 
Now, I've got my own vineyard, she says. I own my own. It's before me. Oh, Solomon, when my vineyard brings in a thousand coins, as they all do, when that's kind of standard, you can have all a thousand. Because typically, the vine dressers, the people who work the vineyard, you would pay them 200. So she's saying, when I look at our marriage, I'm not 80% in. I'm 100% in. I'm 100% devoted to you. And that's really how marriage works. If you have two people giving 50%, you only meet in the middle. If you have two people giving 100%, you overlap all the way. So when you have a bad day, you're giving it to, we're 100% in, 100% invested, 100% getting closer to God, 100% tapping into God's power, 100% trying to take God's patience and flow through me. That's what it's calling for, 100% investment. Then she says, for you who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice and hear it. Now the reason I say we need a garden restoring love on the eighth day is because this picture of gardens and vineyards points to the ultimate vineyard and the ultimate garden when heaven comes back down to earth in Revelation. It says in Revelation, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeds from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, the tree of life, the garden is coming back down. And it bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding the fruit each month. Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself The power God offers, whether you're married or single, whether you're struggling with depression or some addiction people don't know about or some secret or just loneliness or just the power to overcome some habit, all of that can be found on the eighth day. The power to refresh, revitalize, resurrect or restore can be found on the eighth day. And the book ends with her kind of favorite pillow talk line she's been given through the whole book. She turns to him one last time and says, Hey, baby, make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle. Be like my young stag on the mountains of spices, which she uses to refer to herself. And we have one last picture of the intimate connection of this passionate love between man and woman that's a mirror in a different way, but it's a mirror of God's spiritual passion for us. So here's what I'd like to encourage you to do as we finish the series. I'd like to encourage you to ravish your resurrecting king, and to be ravished by him. While the book is primarily about marriage, it's secondarily all about Jesus. That Jesus said he is the bridegroom who's come for the bride. When's the last time you fell back in love with Jesus? For those of us who have been married, sometimes this analogy has to work the other way because it's kind of a little weird thinking I'm the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. So let me flip the analogy for the men. Do you remember that moment that you were sitting up with a, with a pastor or a priest and all your friends were gathered around and that door was about to open? I do. That door flew open and you were ravished. Not just by the beautiful white dress. Not just by how gorgeous that woman is. But you're going to spend your life with her. You've been thinking about her. You want to spend time with her. You want to talk with her. You want to share dreams together. Everything's before you are ravished by your first love. Revelation, Jesus says, you have forgotten your first love. You need to be ravished by me again. I remember my wife coming down the, the aisle and, and her family's not very emotional. My family is very emotional and I just start crying. And it's like the kind of crying, it's, it's like a happy crying, but it's like, a, it's like I can't control myself crying. And I'm just getting more and more happy crying. And Beth's like, 
I'm going to ruin my makeup. And I'm like, I can't help it. So she's crying and I'm crying. It's kind of a you know, smiling. We just, we're just ravished. And, and, and I remember best family's not very emotional. So they're like, he's probably just stressed. Probably just stressed. You know, you wouldn't want to be emotional about somebody you care about. So in those early days of, of marriage, in those early days of dating, you're ravished by that person. You think about them. Now flip it. If you're a woman, you remember walking down that aisle or your hopes of one day walking down that aisle. What kind of man do you want standing up at that altar? A man who's faithful to you, saved himself for you, who's willing to die for you, willing to protect you. He's saying, you know what I want more than anything? To covenant with you. And Jesus is that bridegroom who said, I want to covenant with you. I want to put your name on my arm to brag about you. I want you, I want you to know your name is on my heart. And when my heart was being crushed and a spear was going into it, I was doing it for you. That's the bridegroom. And he says, this is, how I, this is what I did to ravish you. I died for you. I came for you. I am the bridegroom that came and I rescued you. I died for you so that you could know a faithful, loving, passionate God. So please, Jesus says in Revelation, return to your first love. Let's pray. Father, oh, how often we take you for granted, how often we just kind of be Christians and we're not passionate about who you are and really think about what you've done. God, will you ravish us again? Will you remind us what you've done, that we may love you even a fraction of how you love us. Amen.